crazy I'm crazy for feeling so lonely Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 13th day of September, 2009. I'd like to welcome all of my listeners back to the Corbett Report and invite them, as always, to check out the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com and also our affiliate, which is now broadcasting us every week, on ZeroPointRadio.com. Now, on a somewhat disheartening note this week, you might remember that last week I was calling for my listeners' help in putting together episode 100 of this podcast, scheduled to be released on September 27th. And the idea for episode 100 is that we will be focusing on the 100 signs that we are winning. And out of the 4,000-plus people that I know are downloading this podcast each week, I have so far received four responses. Now, the responses so far have all been extremely good, extremely intelligent, articulate, and well-put. And they include responses from my good friends James Evan Pilato at MediaMonarchy.com and Richard Grove at TragedyAndHope.com. And also one eloquently worded response chastising me for doing this at all, because there are so many important issues that I should be focusing on rather than on signs that we are winning. Well, at any rate, I do appreciate all of the responses, and would really encourage other listeners, if they have not yet done so, to think about their own idea for signs that we are winning. Again, I know I can get more than four responses out of the 4,000 plus people who are listening to this right now, so... If you have an idea for a sign that we are winning, please let me know by either leaving a voicemail message at the local Austin, Texas phone number 512-553-0297, or of course you can email us by leaving a message through the contact form on the CorbettReport.com homepage. Either way, I will be including the best responses in episode 100, so please indicate whether or not you'd like your name to be used on air. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from Bloomberg.com, September 7th, 2009. UN says new currency is needed to fix broken confidence game. The dollar's role in international trade should be reduced by establishing a new currency to protect emerging markets from the confidence game of financial speculation, the United Nations said. UN countries should agree on the creation of a global reserve bank to issue the currency and to monitor the national exchange rates of its members 
the Geneva-based UN Conference on Trade and Development said today in a report. China, India, Brazil, and Russia this year called for a replacement to the dollar as the main reserve currency after the financial crisis sparked by the collapse of the U.S. mortgage market led to the worst global recession since World War II. China, the world's largest holder of dollar reserves, said a supranational currency such as the International Monetary Fund's Special Drawing Rights, or SDRs, may add stability. Today's second real news story comes from Politico, 12th of September 2009. Advisor, high unemployment for years. The president's chief economic advisor warned Friday that the nation's unemployment rate could stay unacceptably high for years to come, a situation that would seriously complicate Barack Obama's ability to convince America that he's beating back the recession. The level of unemployment is unacceptably high, National Economic Council Director Larry Summers said Friday, and will, by all forecasts, remain unacceptably high for a number of years. Today's third real news story comes from the Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org, September 2nd, 2009. Cybersecurity Act returns with a fresh coat of paint. In April, we voiced serious concerns about the Cybersecurity Act of 2009, a bill by Senators Jay Rockefeller and Olympia Snow that sought to give the federal government unprecedented power over the Internet. For months, the bill has been redrafted behind closed doors and has recently been circulated, but by all accounts, the changes are cosmetic, and it's sadly more of the same. Like the original bill, the new version appears to give the president carte blanche to decide which networks and systems, private or public, count as critical infrastructure information systems or networks. And alongside that authority, there still appears to be murky language that would permit the president to shut down the internet. Note the troubling provision in the original bill, which said, The president may order the disconnection of any federal government or United States critical infrastructure information systems or networks in the interests of national security. The new bill says, The president, in the event of an immediate threat, may declare a cybersecurity emergency and may, if the president finds it necessary for the national defense and security, and in coordination with relevant industry sectors, direct the national response to the cyber threat and the timely restoration of the affected critical infrastructure information system or network. In other words, they appear to have packaged presidential authority to shut down the internet and other private networks behind a ribbon of red tape and the words national response. Today's final real news story comes from whitehouse.gov, September 10th, 2009. Notice, continuation of the national emergency with respect to certain terrorist attacks. Consistent with Section 202D of the National Emergencies Act, 50 U.S. Code 1622D, I am continuing for one year the national emergency declared on September 14th, 2001, in Proclamation 7463 with respect to the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, and the continuing and immediate threat of further attacks on the United States. Because the terrorist threat continues, 
The national emergency declared on September 14, 2001, and the powers and authorities adopted to deal with that emergency must continue in effect beyond September 14, 2009. Therefore, I am continuing in effect for an additional year, the national emergency the former president declared on September 14, 2001, with respect to the terrorist threat. This notice shall be published in the Federal Register and transmitted to the Congress. Barack Obama, the White House, September 10, 2009. Welcome, my friends, to episode 98 of the Corbett Report, Weaponized Psychology. Now, as regular listeners to the podcast will remember from last week's episode, 9-11-09 and the bigger, bigger picture, 9-11 Truth has undergone some remarkable breakthroughs as incredible news stories continue to come out, even now, even eight years on from the horrific events of 9-11, that continue to expose the fraud, the lie, and the cover-up that is the official theory of the 9-11 attacks. From Sibel Edmonds, to P-Tech, to the suppressed archive of news stories put together by Jonathan Elenoff of of coreofcorruption.com, there have been remarkable successes in helping to further the cause of 9-11 truth and to put it even more firmly in the public consciousness. But even with all of the successes that have happened over the past year, the success that the 9-11 Truth Movement has achieved in just the last week is perhaps even more phenomenal. Now, I'm sure many of my listeners have seen what has transpired over the last week, but for those who haven't, I refer you to the incredibly important PrisonPlanet.com and InfoWars.com articles, 20 Minutes with the President, and the explanatory article that went along with that, Charlie Sheen requests meeting with Obama over 9-11 cover-up. And, of course, the video, Charlie Sheen's video message to President Obama. As a tactical maneuver in the info war, this can only be described as an incredible success. And in the week leading up to the 9-11 anniversary on 9 9-11 Truth was once again back in the mainstream and being talked about on every major news network and newspaper. A news.google.com search for Charlie Sheen Obama 9-11, at least as it stands now, will reveal hundreds upon hundreds of news sources that have picked up on this incredible news story and broadcasted it literally all around the world. Again, this is very exciting, bringing 9-11 truth and specifically the fact that six of the 9-11's own commissioners have called the 9-11 commission a fraud and a cover-up to mainstream attention. Another remarkable success for 9-11 Truth happened on September 10th of this week, and details of that can be found on the nyccan.org website in an article under the headline, City of New York Concedes 9-11 Coalition Has 30,000 Valid Signatures to Put Referendum for 9-11 Investigation on November Ballot. Again, that's an incredibly important story, and I certainly hope my readers will check into the NYC CAN initiative, if they haven't already done so, to find out about the initiative to put a referendum on the New York City ballot. 
in order to reopen the 9-11 investigation with an impartial, subpoena-powered investigation, which, of course, is one of the key fundamental aims of 9-11 Truth, and thus this has been a remarkable breakthrough in that case. And on the evidence front, yet more evidence has come to light, if any really needed to come to light, that, in fact, the FBI did everything it possibly could to not prevent the 9-11 attacks before they happened. This one comes from ABC News from September 10th, 2009. 9-11 ringleader Mohammed Atta could have been stopped, FBI informant says. And of course that just drives with all of the information that the 9-11 truth has already tirelessly worked to uncover, showing how Time and time and time again, the FBI has not only failed to stop the 9-11 attacks at every possible opportunity, but subsequently promoted people who were responsible for that failure. So once again, this has been an incredible week for 9-11 Truth. But perhaps the clearest sign that 9-11 Truth really is exploding and rocketing back into the mainstream and popular consciousness is the fact that the corporate-controlled media talking heads are once again desperate to smear anyone who questions the official 9-11 myth. On the pinhead front, actor Charlie Sheen, he's a bit out there on political matters. He continues to believe 9-11 was an American conspiracy. America deserves better. I mean, come on. Come on, people. The 9-11 Commission report is a blatant mark of manipulation, secrecy, and fiction. Come on, the time is now. Demand the truth. Mr. Sheen should get off at his theories offensive to those who lost loved ones on 9-11, and he is a pinhead. All right, okay, I'll admit that making fun of Bill O'Reilly's journalistic integrity is about as intellectually rewarding as playing checkers with a first grader, so I'm not going to take the bait and actually bother to refute Bill O'Reilly and his insightful comments about Charlie Sheen. I think they refute themselves. But I think it's important for the 9-11 truth movement not to resort to the exact same tricks that the corporate-controlled media does by setting up a straw man as our opponent. Of course, our real opponent is not Bill O'Reilly or people of his ilk. It's only the people who don't really care about political issues at all who get their actual political information from infotainment like that. No, I think it's more important to refute the people who actually are rational, intelligent human beings who really do forcefully argue against the idea that 9-11 could be anything other than what the government presented it as, or at the very least against the people who are claiming to be the purveyors of cold, rational science that disproves any idea that there could have been a conspiracy. Now, I think we all know what that kind of argument looks like and who has been making that argument for years, but... One great example that came out recently is the National Geographic hit piece on 9-11 Truth called 9-11 Science and Conspiracy. Uh, if you have not yet done so, I highly, heartily suggest that you take a look at this ridiculous, laughable tissue of lies that passes for a hit piece on 9-11 Truth. And it is available in its entirety up on YouTube. So, again, please watch it. I think it's highly instructive in and of itself about the ridiculous lengths that the controlled corporate media is going to 
in order to try to present themselves as the purveyors of rational scientific skepticality of the 9-11 truthers, when in fact they're really just showing how ridiculously stupid they are. And some of the ridiculous experiments which they conduct in that National Geographic hit piece that are somehow meant to discredit the 9-11 truth movement are firing explosives into a fiberglass chicken coop at high velocities, as if that somehow tells us what transpired or did not transpire at the Pentagon. Yes, I know it sounds bizarre. It's even more bizarre if you watch it. And uh, also, oh yes, they take an I-beam, which was not used in the World Trade Center construction, and it's a bare beam, which of course the beams in the World Trade Center weren't, and they subject it to minutes of... 2,000 degree jet fuel fires, which of course didn't transpire in the World Trade Center since the jet fuel fire burnt itself out in seconds. And somehow the warping of that steel in a very controlled environment in open air is somehow supposed to tell us something about the World Trade Center collapse. Even though they admit in the documentary it doesn't simulate what happened in the World Trade Center in any meaningful respect. Again, it's a ridiculous tissue of lies, but it's highly instructive about the way these types of hit pieces really work. And inevitably, just like every other hit piece, it comes back to the following question. By presenting this new evidence to the truthers, they and we might learn more about their theories, their beliefs, and perhaps most importantly, why they want to believe. Yes. Why do those truthers want to believe what they believe? That's an excellent, well-reasoned question that couldn't possibly be directed at people who believe the official government story of 9-11. So, hmm, let's see. Why do these conspiracy fear-mongers believe what they believe? Could it be this? I have information about things that our government has lied to, the, to our people, to us, uh, uh, not to me, because I know. For example, to say that, all right, since the fall of the Soviet Union, we ceased all our uh, relationship, intimate relationship with bin Laden and, and Taliban, and, and those things can be proven uh, as lies very easily based on the information they classified in my case, because we did carry very intimate relationship with these people, uh, and, and it involved Central Asia, and all the way up to September 11, I know you're going to say, oh my God, there were this, uh, you know, we went there and we bombed the medical factory in 1990s during uh, Clinton, we declared the most wanted, and what I'm telling you is, with those groups, we had operations in Central Asia, and that relationship, using them as we did during the Afghan uh, and Soviet conflict, we used them all the way until September 11th. Or perhaps it has something to do with this. All right, I'm Mike Springman. Um, some 15 years ago now, I was chief of the visa section at the CIA's consulate at Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. In Jeddah? Yeah. Uh, people were being brought there from all over the Middle East uh, for visas to come to the United States. And I was told they were terrorists that were recruited to come to the U.S. for training and shipped back to Afghanistan for fighting the Soviet soldiers. 
It was people who were being here, who were brought here, who were recruited by the CIA and its asset Osama bin Laden to come to the United States for training as terrorists and to return them to Afghanistan to fight with the Soviet soldiers. Or maybe this is why the 9-11 Truth Movement has questions about 9-11. Knowing what I know, and again, this was written 91 days before the attack, knowing what I know, I can confidently say that until the investigative responsibilities for terrorism are removed from the FBI, I will not feel safe. The FBI has proven for the past decade it cannot identify and prevent acts of terrorism against the United States and its citizens at home and abroad. Even worse, there is virtually no effort on the part of the FBI's International Terrorism Unit to neutralize known and suspected terrorists residing within the United States. Hmm, well, maybe that's not it. Oh, wait, I know, maybe it's this. Some experts believe there is a strong psychological component to these belief systems. I've talked about conspiracy theories with friends of mine and acquaintances who work in the fields of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Not least because one of the major explanations always given is that people are paranoid. Oh, I see. I get it now. It's not that people are skeptical about the official government conspiracy theory of 9-11 because there's actual valid evidence that points them in a different direction. It's because they're delusional. They're crazy. They're borderline schizophrenic. Yes, indeed, we can see why the hit pieces inevitably, always, guaranteed 100% of the time, will come back to the question, why do the conspiracy theorists believe what they believe? Why do they want to believe in conspiracy theories? And of course, they always try to bring it back to that question because they always have an answer. And that answer is, well, they're crazy. Well, that's an excellent and not intellectually lazy way of confronting the issue. Oh, yes, it's, it's wonderful. Well, I don't make it up when I say that these hit pieces always come back to that question. And uh, there are example after example after example after example. Let's just take some from recent weeks, because recent weeks have shown an increase in this particular line of attack on 9-11 Truth, as we will see. But as one recent example of this, we can take a look at the recent Scientific American column by well-known skeptic Michael Shermer, who you might remember from my reference in last week's episode, who recently wrote an excellent and informative and intellectually rigorous piece called Paranoia Strikes Deep, Why People Believe in Conspiracies. Ooh, I bet you he has an answer to that question that he's just waiting to get through after he dismisses the idea of any conspiracy behind 9-11 by painting a 9-11 truther as a crazy conspiracy wingnut. And yes, indeed, that's exactly how it plays out. I'll refrain from going through my whole argument against this article because we don't have the time, but suffice it to say, one of Shermer's main points is that, as G. Gordon Liddy once told him, Conspiracies can't really happen on a large scale because they inevitably come out due to whistleblowers. That's a wonderful, well-reasoned argument except for two tiny points. One, that argument is inherently not falsifiable and therefore not scientific, which Michael Shermer should know, because, of course, if there is a big conspiracy theory that is revealed by whistleblowers, then it serves to confirm that theory that all major conspiracies are revealed by whistleblowers. 
But if there is a big conspiracy that is not revealed by whistleblowers, then it can never be known as a counter-argument against what Michael Shermer has just said. So if he's right, he's right. But if he's wrong, he can never be proven wrong, which is exactly what pseudoscience does. It creates unfalsifiable, meaningless statements, which that one is. And the second problem with that argument is that there are 9-11 whistleblowers. So I would love to hear what Michael Shermer has to say about FBI whistleblower Sibel Edmonds or FBI whistleblower Robert Wright or FBI whistleblower Colleen Rowley, who used 9-11-09 as a day to launch an article in which she urges Congress to press further legislation to protect whistleblowers. Would Michael Shermer be behind that, given that whistleblowers inevitably expose large conspiracies? Well, we'll see. Of course, the Robert Wright FBI whistleblowing relates very well to the corporate whistleblowing of Indira Singh, there are so many whistleblowers around 9-11 that it's actually a bit preposterous to claim that there are no whistleblowers or to completely ignore that fact. So it is an intellectually dishonest argument and not a very compelling one either. But I'll, of course, put a link up so you can judge for yourself. Another example of this trying to attack the messengers rather than looking at any of the evidence they present as their message can be found in the recent edition of Psychology Today in an article by John Gardner entitled Dark Minds. When does incredulity become paranoia? Now, some of the ad hominem attacks on Alex Jones in this piece, rather than on anything of substance about what he has to say as evidence for what he's claiming, can be found in lines like this one. Quote, Jones insists he has a leave-it-to-beaver childhood, I couldn't confirm such an idyllic past. When I asked if I could interview his family or childhood friends, he insisted his family was very private, and he had not kept in touch with a single friend. When I asked if I might look them up, he became irritated. He doubted he could still spell their names, and besides, I'd already taken up enough of his time. End quote. Or how about this one? Quote, Jones says that he has been visited by the FBI and the Secret Service, but can't discuss the interviews. It may be that federal agents, in fact, wanted to evaluate whether he is a threat to the president. End quote. It may be, I suppose, but it wasn't, and in fact it's now a matter of public court record that the visit from the FBI and Secret Service was related to some death threats that were posted by an anonymous commenter on Infowars.com, and the FBI and Secret Service in the investigation wanted the logs from the servers. So it had absolutely nothing to do with Alex Jones, but probably little facts like that won't actually cause a retraction by someone like Dr. Gardner. Now, again, I suggest wholeheartedly that you go and read that article for, its, for yourself so you can see the approach that they are taking in trying to smear people who have any questions about what the government says or does. But suffice it to say that Dr. Gardner goes on to suggest that when people find connections between events, it releases dopamine in their brains, and increased dopamine is a sign of the onset of schizophrenia. So, yes, there you go. Why do conspiracy theorists believe what they believe? Because they're insane. Now, from one perspective, perhaps these ridiculous and transparent hit piece attacks aren't really even worth responding to. 
except for the fact that they are not so much theoretical as they are a very real and very terrifying reality for some. One such person is Claire Swinney from the Web of Evidence blog at clairswinney.wordpress.com. She's been a 9-11 Truth researcher and activist for many years in New Zealand. And in 2006, she had a harrowing experience as a direct result of her 9-11 Truth activism. And her account of that can be read on the Web of Evidence blog under a headline, Held in a Psychiatric Ward and Called Delusional for Saying 9-11 Was an Inside Job. Now, this particular story stems from 9-11 activism that Claire Swinney was engaged in to get TV New Zealand to retract their claim that Osama bin Laden was the culprit behind 9-11. What followed from that point was a series of death threats and other very suspicious incidents, and eventually some anonymous source falsely reported her as suicidal, and two social workers ended up at her door to escort her to the public hospital's psychiatric ward. This experience is very harrowing and very instructive, so it was my pleasure and my honor to talk earlier this week with Claire Swinney about her story. Of course, the interview is available in its entirety from CorbettReport.com, so I would highly suggest my listeners go and listen to the entire interview to find out more. But right now, let's pick up in the middle of the interview at the point where Claire Swinney is being taken in for her initial assessment, and she has her friend Brian by her side. At the hospital, um, I was assessed by a doctor who didn't appear to understand me properly. Um, I suspect English was his second language, um, and he didn't give me the time to explain myself fully. It appeared he had already decided I should be committed before I finished explaining what had occurred. Brian told him he had seen the threats and and that he thought in spite of these I was fine now. Nonetheless, um, I was told I was delusional, suicidal and depressed and should go on antipsychotic medication and antidepressants. The hospital notes revealed that a nurse present had decided that Brian was delusional too. Um, it was awful. Uh, it was really awful at that stage um, because after you've had your life threatened, you need to be with people who will listen to you. Um, you don't want to be surrounded by people who keep telling you it didn't happen, it didn't happen. Um, and it, it feels as if you're being psychologically ab abused. Well, that's what it felt like for me. And I was forced to take antipsychotic medication, which I utterly resented. Um, if they'd taken the time to really listen to me and look at what I was holding in my hands, they wouldn't have forced me to take it. Um, the next day I had a meeting with the chief psychiatrist, Dr. Zubran, and thought he would be able to work out straight away that I was not delusional. Um, I showed him, I tried to show him the evidence of the death threats and the work that I'd been doing in the magazine I had with me, which contained an article I'd written about 9-11. However, no sooner had I tried to get him to look at it, then he just kind of snapped. Um, you're delusional for believing 9-11 was an inside job and those death threats are a defence mechanism, he told me. I tried, to look, I tried to get him to look at the evidence, but he just refused. And 
and this was supposed to be an assessment, I couldn't believe it. He started asking irrelevant questions about, about my private life. And after a few minutes, I got up and walked out. Um, a week later, he did the same thing in the following assessment, um, if that's what you want to call it, during the, the assessment period. He told me I was delusional for believing 9-11 was an inside job. I tried again to get him to look at the evidence, and he again refused. And um, so I could see no way out of this. Um, so anyway, I asked for a hearing before a judge, which took place on the ninth day of my incarceration. And at the beginning of the hearing, the chief psychiatrist told the judge that my belief 9-11 was orchestrated by criminal elements inside the US administration was evidence I suffered from a delusional disorder. And the judge agreed, even though he'd not looked at any of the evidence I had in the magazine that I was holding in front of him. My father was asked to give his opinion, and he said he'd seen the evidence and he knew that 9-11 was an inside job. But instead of questioning my father further, the judge said, oh dear, and then moved on to questioning, questioning someone else. Um, when I was permitted to speak, I said what they should be talking about is whether or not I was suicidal or not. Um, the two psychiatrists present both said I wasn't uh, without hesitation. And um, at the end of the hearing, the chief psychiatrist said I should be kept for 14 days for further assessment because of my belief that 9-11 was an inside job. Um, it showed that I had a delusional disorder. The judge nodded and the lawyer who was appointed to help me did not challenge their decision. It was then that it became apparent the only reason I was being held was because of my political beliefs. So that night I phoned my editor and told him what happened and asked him to write a letter advising that I was not delusional and that a journalist's job is dangerous and it wasn't surprising that I had been threatened because of the work I'd been doing. He wrote a letter that night and I picked up nine copies the next day on a home visit and on return to the hospital I handed the chief psychiatrist a copy and I had one put on the top of my file for the nurses to read. And luckily that day, later that day, I could see people were looking at me differently. They were starting to look at me as if I was a human being. And um, and also fortunately, um, the occupational therapist uh, said that she would organize a meeting with a consumer rights advocate in order to compel the chief psychiatrist to listen to me and look at the evidence that I had. Um, on the 11th day, the chief psychiatrist suggests we go outside to talk. He again said I was delusional for believing 9-11 was an inside job. So I pulled out a clipping, I had this news clipping that I had in my pocket about Building 7's collapse. And, um, and I just held it in front of him and I said, this shows that I'm not delusional. And he just ignored it and he said he would inject me with antidepressants inter intramuscularly if I didn't take them. Um, I told him he didn't treat me like a human being and then I walked back to the hospital and it was when we met at the doorway at the hospital for the first time in 11 days he asked to see my evidence. So we sat at a table and the consumer rights advocate joined us as well and one of the nurses who told him that there was a consensus amongst my nurses that I should be released immediately.
Um, I showed the psychiatrist my article and some of the threats, the death threats, and within 15 minutes of the discussion with the advocate mediating, he decided I could go home, but I had to have home visits. Um, my last words to him, um, as I handed him, confronting the evidence in 9-11, The Road to Tyranny, was, I hope that you'll apologise once you've watched those. And he just looked at me and he said, I don't think so. And, um, yeah, I was, I was absolutely shocked by what happened. Well, it is a shocking story in a number of ways. Did you get your apology? Um, I did get my apology, but I had to write many letters and I made phone call after phone call to the district inspector for mental health and also uh, in the end uh, I ended up threatening to protest outside of the hospital that was in August 2008 and it was then that I got the um, the apology and it was quite a thoughtfully worded one so I was grateful for that but I never got an apology from Dr Zubran and that's the person that I believe should have apologised particularly since um, he had contravened Section 4 of the Mental Health Act, which makes it clear that no one could be judged mentally ill solely on the basis of their political beliefs. And um, the District Inspector of Health uh, for Mental Health, Northland, she's a barrister, the lawyer she appointed to assist me, and the staff of Ward 7, including the psychiatrist, did not appear to know the law. I was just... Uh, the whole situation was com completely bizarre. Well, it's it's absolutely incredible. And when you think about it, just in, in summary, the system was against you at each and every possible turn when you were really the person receiving these death threats and these messages. Yep. And yet the system turned against you, mm -hmm. incarcerated you, force medicated you, wouldn't yep. let you leave. And then eventually you had to claw your way out, basically. Mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's really an incredible story and one that exposes the system for what it is, even mm -hmm. given the supposed safeties in the uh, New Zealand Mental Health Act against being prosecuted for p political beliefs. We all know that that only depends on the political paradigm that we're living in mm. and the prevailing power structure. Yeah. So I guess the question is, how has this experience affected your your trust of the system, of the types of the doctors who participated in this, of the uh, the courts, of the of the basically the entire system that you were up against? Um, well, it was a rude awakening, um, to put it mildly, and um, and I spent um, I've spent quite a few um, hours um, learning more about the mental health system because um, I was encouraged to uh, take action by the patient's rights advocacy spokesperson in New Zealand and she made me aware of the fact that a lot of people are getting locked up, there's nothing wrong with them, they're put on dangerous psychotropic medications and hundreds are given electric shock treatments against their will and some of these people have got absolutely nothing wrong with them and um, it's really a, a crime against humanity that is being committed and people need to wake up to it. Now, the idea of who gets to decide who is crazy is one that has long been part of the popular consciousness and thinking about psychology. But it's interesting to note that this is not merely some layman's misunderstanding of the problems of classifying people psychologically. 
This is, in fact, something that goes to the very heart of the profession of psychology and has been addressed even in the scientific literature by scientists studying psychology. The power that psychologists wield in their pronouncements of someone as sane or insane, rational or delusional, based on their even their political beliefs and opinions, no matter how evidence-based those opinions may be, the power vested in the psychologists to incarcerate and force medicate and basically to make people comply with their version of reality is something that on its face is something desirable to any dictatorial regime. Well, more on that later. But first, let's take a look at some of the science-based arguments against psychology and the practice of labeling people as insane. And perhaps there's no better way to do that than listening to an excerpt from the very interesting BBC documentary The Trap by the very interesting documentarian Adam Curtis, who of course also made The Power of Nightmares and The Century of the Self, which are two must-see documentaries. In this short extract from The Trap, we'll hear about an experiment conducted by David Rosenhan in 1972 an experiment that he conducted to inquire into the validity of psychiatric diagnoses, and one with some very surprising and very troubling results. At the same time, R.D. Lang was continuing his assault on what he saw as the corrupt elites. He was about to use his growing power to attack one of the most powerful professions in America the medical and psychiatric establishment. The results would be dramatic, but the outcome would be very different from what Lang intended. His ideas would undermine the all-controlling medical elite, but far from liberating people, what would actually emerge would be a revolutionary new system of order and control, driven by the objective power of numbers. It's a space where you can meet with her, where she's not going to be frightened that you're going to put her away or that you're going to do anything to her. Lang was now a celebrity in America and was one of the leaders of what was called the anti-psychiatry movement. Psychiatry, Lang said, was a fake science, used as a system of political control to shore up a violent, collapsing society. Its categories of madness and sanity had no reality. Madness was simply a convenient label used to lock away those who wanted to break free. Hundreds of young psychiatrists came to Lang's talks, and one of them was inspired, and decided to find a way of testing whether what Lang said was true or not. Could psychiatrists in America distinguish between madness and sanity? He was called David Rosenham, and he devised a dramatic experiment. He assembled eight people, including himself, none of whom had ever had any psychiatric problems. Each person was then sent across the country to a specific mental hospital. At an agreed time, they all presented themselves at their hospital and told the psychiatrist on duty they were hearing a voice in their head that said the word thud. That was the only lie they should tell. Otherwise, they were to behave and respond completely normally. And then what happened? They were all diagnosed as insane. 
and admitted to the hospital. All of them? All of them. And were any of them insane? No. There was nobody who could have judged these people as insane. But I told friends, I told my family, I get out when, it's, when I can get out. That's all. Be there for a couple of days and I, I get out. Nobody knew I'd be there for two months. Once admitted, all eight fake patients acted completely normally, yet the hospitals refused to release them and diagnosed seven as suffering from schizophrenia and one from bipolar disorder. They were all given powerful psychotropic drugs. They found there was nothing they could do to convince the doctors they were sane and it quickly became clear that the only way out would be to agree that they were insane and then pretend to be getting better. The only way out was to point out that they're correct. They had said I was insane, I am insane, but I'm getting better. That was a, a, an affirmation of their view. Of when Rosenhan finally got out and reported the experiment, there was an uproar. He was accused of trickery and deceit. And one major hospital challenged him to send some more fakes to them, guaranteeing that they would spot them this time. Rosenhan agreed, and after a month, the hospital proudly announced that they had discovered 41 fakes. Rosenhan then revealed he had sent no one to the hospital. Indeed, Rosenhan's experiments did cause quite a stir of controversy when they were first conducted and published in the journal Science. And the experiment did have its detractors. For example, Robert Spitzer, in a 1975 criticism of Rosenhan's study, said that if someone were to drink a quart of blood and then come into a hospital emergency room vomiting up blood, obviously the staff would behave as if that person was suffering from a peptic ulcer and treat him for that. So for people to come into a psychiatric ward complaining of hearing voices and then be admitted for being insane is perhaps not that odd and is only a function of the fact that the doctors believe what the patient is telling them about their experience. Of course, one has to wonder whether simply hearing a voice that says thud, when in every other respect, in every other part of your life, you feel perfectly fine and normal and sane, and act in a sane, normal, rational way, whether that really does validate the forced incarceration, forced medication, and other horrific experiences of the clinical psychological experience. And it also does absolutely nothing to address the fact that the hospital misdiagnosed the 41 patients that they thought were imposters in Rosenhan's experiment, when in fact there were no imposters. That can only be the result of the fact that there is no way for anyone to make an accurate psychiatric diagnosis on 100% scientifically safe grounds. Of course, we never really expect 100% accuracy when it comes to things like this, but one would certainly expect less than 41 out of 193 cases to be misdiagnosed. That is an abysmal rating, and nothing less than an indictment of the psychiatric diagnostic process. Now, an excellent exploration of the issue of how psychology can be used as a weapon to suppress political dissidents in a totalitarian system comes from a PrisonPlanet.com article from the 3rd of September 2009, 
why psychologists are infinitely more dangerous than conspiracy theorists. It reads in part, quote, In the former Soviet Union, psychuskas, mental hospitals, were used by the state as prisons in order to isolate political prisoners, discredit their ideas, and break them physically and mentally. The Soviet state began using mental hospitals to punish dissidents in 1939 under Stalin. According to official Soviet psychiatry and the Moscow Serbsky Institute at the time, ideas about a struggle for truth and justice are formed by personalities with a paranoid structure. Treatment for this special political schizophrenia included various forms of restraint, electric shocks, electromagnetic torture, radiation torture, lumbar punctures, various drugs such as narcotics, tranquilizers, and insulin, and beatings. Anne Applebaum, author of Gulag, A History, indicates that at least 365 sane people were treated for politically defined madness, although she surmises there were many more. In his book, Dangerous Minds, Political Psychiatry in China Today and Its Origins in the Mao Era, praised as eloquent and convincing in a New York Times Review of Books piece, author Robert Monroe exposes how psychiatrists and psychologists continue to be at the forefront of the brutal communist Chinese system of ascribing mental illnesses to those who express even mildly negative political opinions towards the ruling party. The book reveals how, from the 1950s onward, not only Chinese dissidents, but people who submitted petitions to the authorities have been detained by the police, examined by psychiatrists, and found to be criminally insane, or, if found mentally normal, designated as criminals to be cast into the prison system. Recent revelations surrounding the torture scandal highlight the role of psychologists in what the Physicians for Human Rights organization alleges amounted to unlawful human experimentation and torture on inmates at Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, Bagram, and other U.S. detention sites. PHR says health professionals participated at every stage in the development, implementation, and legal justification of what it calls the CIA's secret torture program, reports the London Guardian. End quote. Now, that article goes on and on and includes much more very interesting information on this subject, so I'll let you go and read that for yourself. But suffice it to say that the link between psychology and political repression is not a very tenuous one, nor is it a very difficult one to discover or to understand the implications of. The ability to call someone crazy and actually have the force of an institution behind you in order to lock them up against their will and force-feed them drugs as a result of your decree is obviously everything that a dictator or dictator-want-to-be would want to have. Which is exactly why people who do question the government and do not believe things like the 9-11 Commission report must at the very least be concerned about this troubling sign that there are moves afoot to label political dissidents as mental instability. But perhaps the best way to counteract such ridiculous lies and propaganda is to point out that they are lies and propaganda. And what better way to do that than through scientific analysis of people's psychology? What do I mean? Well, let's turn to the George Washington blog 
at georgewashington2.blogspot.com from August 25th, 2009. Scientists confirm the effectiveness of the big lie. People will go to extraordinary lengths to create false justifications for government misdeeds. Quote, Adolf Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, All this was inspired by the principle, which is quite true in itself, that in the big lie, there is always a certain force of credibility. Because the broad masses of a nation are always more easily corrupted in the deeper strata of their emotional nature than consciously or voluntarily, and thus in the primitive simplicity of their minds, they more readily fall victims to the big lie than the small lie, since they themselves often tell small lies in little matters, but would be ashamed to resort to large-scale falsehoods. It would never come into their heads to fabricate colossal untruths, and they would not believe that others could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously. Even though the facts which prove this to be so may be brought clearly to their minds, they will still doubt and waver, and will continue to think that there may be some other explanation. For the grossly impudent lie always leaves traces behind it, even after it has been nailed down, a fact which is known to all expert liars in this world, and to all who conspire together in the art of lying. Science has now helped to explain why the big lie is effective. Specifically, sociologists from four major research institutions investigated why so many Americans believed that Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11, years after it became obvious that Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. The researchers found, as described in an article in the journal Sociological Inquiry and reprinted by Newsweek, many Americans felt an urgent need to seek justification for a war already in progress. Rather than search rationally for information that either confirms or disconfirms a particular belief, people actually seek out information that confirms what they already believe. For the most part, people completely ignore contrary information. The study demonstrates voters' ability to develop elaborate rationalizations based on faulty information. As the study notes, this tendency of many people to make up false stories to explain why we went to war, and then hold on to such false beliefs in the face of contrary evidence, is a serious challenge to democratic theory and practice. Until people learn to think more clearly and rationally, they are easily manipulated. All a government has to do is to tell a big enough lie, and many people will swallow it hook, line, and sinker. Or the government can just do something big, like starting a war for no good reason, or giving trillions in bailouts to the wealthiest corporations instead of the little people who need it, and many people will struggle mightily to themselves to concoct false justifications for doing so. End quote. Now, of course, when we're talking about the big lie in Nazi Germany and propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, one only has to be reminded that Goebbels had Edward Bernays on his bookshelf. And, of course, you'll remember our previous podcast episode, Meet Edward Bernays. And if you haven't done so, I highly suggest you do so to figure out how psychology has been used as a weapon against the populace for well over a century in order to manipulate the people into doing what the corporations and governments want them to do. Again, also Adam Curtis's excellent documentary, The Century of the Self, especially part one, is absolute essential viewing 
for understanding how psychology is used to manipulate people and the masses. Now we stand at the point where we are being told that because we question the government's official theory about 9-11, we are potentially delusional or even borderline schizophrenic. And some people have even been held in psychiatric institutions for believing that. We must resist this categorization and we must expose it for what it is. A mere mask for a tyrannical grab for power by the authorities which will use every institution at their disposal to forward their political agenda. And perhaps the best way to expose this for the laughable piece of intellectual tripe that it is, is to laugh at it. So, once again, you might remember this from episode 50, but once again, I'd like to leave today with the incredibly humorous observation of Michael Parenti on what happened after the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded that the JFK assassination actually probably was a conspiracy. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 99 of the Corbett Report podcast, Know Your Vaccines. You know, back in 1978, the House Select Committee reported, in fact, after an investigation, that there was more than one assassin shooting Kennedy. And there, therefore, was a conspiracy. In response, the Washington Post immediately editorialized in 1978, quote, Could it have been some other malcontent whom Mr. Oswald met casually? It gets better. It gets better. With Could not as many as three or four societal outcasts with no ties to any one organization have developed in some spontaneous way a common determination to express their alienation in the killing of President Kennedy. It is possible that two persons acting independently attempted to shoot the president at the very same time. It is possible. It's not at all likely. So sometimes those who deny conspiracies create the most convoluted fantasies of all.
No matter how you, you think, define do you think it, they Sheen still believe it. is is uh, crazy. Yeah, 